Well, welcome everyone. We're up and broadcasting. Again, for meditation Q&A session, which means we're here to answer questions about meditation, specifically the meditation in our tradition. So if you're new to this tradition, recommend that you read the booklet that we have on how to meditate. If you're looking to do a practice, a course in our tradition, you can do an at-home course right now. You sign up on our website. The link to this is all in the description to this video. It's all free. We don't charge for anything. Today is the full moon, the second full moon in October, I think. It's a blue moon. Not that that really means anything. But the full moon is traditionally a time of increased practice and study and teaching uh, in Buddhism. So this morning I was invited to take part in a online meditation broadcast by the Tourism Authority of Thailand, which I guess is a big deal. They're a very big organization in Thailand, part of the government, I think. Anyway, they were very kind and very happy to have me, so Was, uh, it was a great thing, and people came from all over the world. Some of our people came, some of their people came, and I was able to give 10-minute instruction on meditation, just brief. And they talked about how international it was, how people came from all over the world, and that's really very true about all the things that we seem to do. We... We are very international. There's nothing deep or profound about that fact, but it does make you think about the impact that we and people like us have on the world. The impact the Buddha had on the world. Now, there's a claim that Buddhism has results that are see, you can see here and now. wonder what the results of Buddhism have been for the world. We talk about the, the, the impact that certain inventions had. What was the impact of the wheel or fire? What was the impact of electricity? What's the impact of mindfulness? Well, the first is mindfulness. Mindfulness in the world. We have a world where we got to believe that in some, to some extent, mindfulness is more more valued than it was before the Buddha came. That there's a stream or there are threads of interest and understanding about 
seeing reality clearly as it is. That's the first the first benefit of mindfulness is mindfulness itself that we have a better sense of proper and improper better sense of the nature of our experiences we have a better grasp on the nature of things the quality of our experiences the quality of our reactions quality of our interactions so we make better decisions because of the Buddha's teaching second is happiness we got to think that there's some to some extent some of the happiness in the world is caused by the influence of the Buddha's teaching of course there may be other reasons unrelated to Buddhism but one of the great benefits of mindfulness is happiness. You live a life with greater happiness than you maybe even ever thought you were possible, you were capable of. Before finding meditation, you may have felt adrift, overwhelmed by mental illness, by bad habits of mind. And through the practice, many people have found happiness. The third benefit is the benefit that comes not just in this life, but the benefit to our stream of consciousness from life to life. Meaning some of the benefits that came even in the Buddha's time, we might still be feeling as beings who have been born again and forgotten, ever meeting the Buddha or ever learning his teachings, but with a sense of ethics and morality, a sense of wholesome and goodness. Wholesomeness and goodness. A sense of clarity and understanding. One of the benefits of Buddhism is is the the, the depth of its effect on the mind. And so even though you may not become enlightened in this life, the quality, qualities of mind that you have developed through meditation, even when it's challenging, even when, especially when it challenges you, they continue on life after life. And that's a great benefit, something we can probably see even today, that we don't know who has practiced or who has been influenced by the Buddha. Probably much of the interest in things like ethics and meditation 
some of the philosophical traditions that came later might have been influenced by the Buddha. And the fourth is the ultimate peace that comes from the Buddha's teaching. You've got to imagine that some of the peace in the world, some of the peace that's still left, whatever's left of peace in this world, when you meet people who are peaceful, when you find, live in situations where there's no conflict, and you find yourself alone in the forest, some of the peace in the world is because of people who would otherwise have been violent and encouraged and incited violence and caused the world to burn even more than it's burning now. Some of that peace that's left over, some of it must be because of the Buddha, because that's the final benefit of mindfulness, peace. Even just the experience, the, the attainment of Nibbāna, Parinibbana, when someone passes away and doesn't come back, they leave behind nothing but peace. Like the, what the Buddha left behind was peace. Freedom from any danger, freedom from any stress, never to cause disharmony in the world again. So this is what we're doing in the world. We may never see, we may never be able to pinpoint how we've changed the world. And ultimately the changes are going to eventually make way for future things. But we see the benefits in ourselves. And we continue in this way precisely because we see positivity of it. We see the positive qualities in ourselves, in our experience, and in the world around us. So, as usual, we will enter into our meditation, or our question and answer phase portion of this, this session. So I'd ask from here on, there'll be no more chatting in the chat box. If you have a question, post a question. If it's not a question, well, just close your eyes and meditate on it. And I'm ready when you are, Chris. Okay, let's begin. Can doing mindful activities, such as a mindful shower, mindful yoga, mindful exercise, etc., have as much benefits as meditation if one finds it hard to sit for more than 10 minutes? So the best way to deal with, the best thing to do when something, when one finds something hard, is to practice it. If you want something not to be hard anymore, you should practice it. And so to some extent, that's the whole point of meditation, that we should uh, work on those things that we find challenging. So if you do something that's easier, you'll get less benefit because you're less challenged and, and therefore there's less training involved. Those things that you call mindful 
are just names. If you're going to do the same thing that you do in, in formal meditation, which here that would be according to the booklet that we have, then you'll find that just as hard, if not harder, to do in the shower, while doing yoga, while exercising, etc. But um, it's, it's, it's quite common for people to call things mindful. But it's one thing to call it mindful, it's another to actually be doing the exact same sort of things that you're expected to do when sitting. That being said, it, it may be easier because, well, it's probably easier because of that, because you're, you're less... Um, you're feeling less confined by the practice. And because there's a diversity that keeps you interested and so on. And that's the whole point of doing the walking is because there's not, the, walking and sitting is because there's not the diversity. And so it forces you to confront things like anxiety, restlessness, fatigue, liking, disliking, etc. Boredom even. So the challenge is good for you, basically. Now, that, 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 the thing is, it's always going to be hard in the beginning. Just don't be discouraged by that. And certainly, you have to change that perspective of thinking, it's hard, therefore I should do something easier. If you start to, to to challenge that and confront those things that are hard, you'll find much more benefit. And you'll find they get easier, of course. What would be the best practice for one who couldn't concentrate properly because of debilitating brain damage? Well, we're not too concerned with concentration. There's no properly concentrate. Properly concentrating is to note something. If you can recognize something as it is, I mean, if you have enough mindfulness to type out that sentence, you're okay to practice. So just being able to recognize things, that's all that's required. The best practice, I would still say, is according to the booklet, according to this teaching. I mean, you're just asking me, this is the tradition I recommend. Is it possible to note the sensations of parts of the body, even if they are not prominent? For example, the arms, elbows, hands, mouth, eyes. Resistance hides in the whole body, so I find it beneficial. So, see, the problem with this is that you're looking for something. And in looking, you're cultivating the habit of looking. You're cultivating the habit of trying to fix as well. You see this as this, you have this concept of resistance hiding. And that's just a concept. But you get into that idea of, of ferreting out and, and, uh, and discovering resistance, which we're not really into. Why we focus on what's prominent is because that's what's there. And that's choiceless. You're not making a decision. You're not trying to um, arbitrarily or, or you know, 
intentionally find something. So we pick some banal exercise like watching the stomach, watching the foot, but there's nothing special about those. It's just something easy, something simple, something repetitive. So finding it beneficial, probably you find it easier. It's more challenging to have to focus on the same thing over and over again because it's dull and banal. But that's the whole point, just to give your mind a chance to complain. <laughs> I'm not really sure what you're looking for, but I wouldn't go looking. How do we verify if we are doing sati or samasati? Well, samasati is the last moment of consciousness before nibbana. It, it's called samasati because it has the other seven factors combined. There's nothing different from that and other kinds of sati. It's just perfect at that point. All of the eight factors come together and you call them samma. Sati means to remember. So in the context of the preliminary path, before you reach the Eightfold Noble Path, it involves mindfulness of the present, remembering the present. It's not actually mindfulness, that's not the best translation, but it means to remember. So if remembering the past, remembering things you have to do in the future, that's sati, but it's not, not according to the practice. So remembrance of the present, that's sati. When you experience something and then you remember it for what it is, rather than getting lost in reaction, that's sati. How do you know that you're doing that? I mean, to that extent, in that sense, it's not really something you can. You have to ask whether is this right or is this wrong. It's right if it's like that, if it's reminding you or remembering something just as it is. That's sati. So... How you how you can tell that that's right sati and or how you can tell the, that it's it's a good thing to be doing, because it is right sati. But how do you know? How do you can you confirm that? You can confirm that because of the results, of course. When you do that, you'll find that you're less reactionary. You're better able to see your reactions. Everything becomes clearer. You're much more present, and you start to learn about how your mind and your body work together. Just the clarity, really, because that's what mindfulness leads to. It leads to vipassana. Sati leads to vipassana. Vipassana means seeing clearly. Can the touch points be implemented in other postures, such as lying or standing? Yes. I have achieved success in an exam. However, I haven't been able to come to terms with it, and now I'm concerned about the upcoming exam. It feels like a vicious loop. Meditation isn't helping. Help. So, it really, the question is, what do you expect meditation to How do you expect meditation to help? In what way? Because if it's not helping, then either A, you're not doing it right, or B... It's not supposed to help with that in that in the way that you think it is. What meditation should do is should help. It should initially it shouldn't do anything besides helping you to see your qualities of mind, to see experiences as they are. Now, seeing experiences as they are 
seems like a pointless task because it doesn't change anything, right? When you're stressed, you just know that you're stressed. Okay, so I know that I'm stressed now. How does that help? But it actually is that which helps the most. It's the only thing that helps on a very real and basic level because it's clarity. It's, it's, it's vision. It's seeing things as they are. When you see that things are stressful, when you see that things cause experiences and reactions cause you stress, that's all it takes to change your mind, to change your habits. And the more clearly you see things as causing you stress and suffering, the weaker and the weaker is your attachment and your inclination towards those things until your mind completely lets go of them. That's all it takes. So meditation only helps you to see things clearly and not react. See things clearly and, and cut off the chain of, of delusion and reaction. It won't help in any other way. It helps you be more patient and it requires you to be patient. You can't just do meditation and then think suddenly everything's going to be perfect. That's not how it works. You have to do meditation as a means of letting go of expectations for things to be perfect or this way or that way. Letting go of your ambitions and your and so on. So for things like exams, there's what? Lots of worry, stress, um, fatigue even, headaches, that sort of thing. It's not going to make any of that go away, but it's going to help you see it more clearly. Once you see it more clearly, you will see it become better. It will go away. It'll go away because you stop feeling it. But you need to have that ability to understand that there's a disconnect. Meditation doesn't directly make things better. It helps you see what you're doing wrong. That's what meditation does. The, the doing things right comes through the knowledge of what is the wrong way, basically. So it's a it's a two step process. It's not meditate, poof, everything's good. It's meditate, oh my god, meditation shows me how bad everything is, and then poof, everything's good. Why? Because you know what's bad. You need that patience to, to see the second step. Does even the rising and falling of the abdomen need to stop being perceived for cessation slash nibbana to happen? When cessation happens, does the noting continue? Is one aware? So for, for cessation to occur right before the cessation, no, there has to be the perception of something because otherwise it would be cessation itself. Cessation in terms of Nibbana means cessation, so there would be no arising of awareness. There's no arising, so awareness is an arising. Awareness is something that arises. Noting is something that arises. So none of those things would exist there. Thirty-five minutes into Vipassana, my leg really started to hurt. Despite inquiring on the nature of the pain, I got extremely lightheaded, anxious, and nauseous, so I had to stop. Any reason for this? I don't know if you've read our booklet and what you mean by Vipassana, but I'd recommend, if you're interested in my opinion, to read the booklet. It might give you some insight in a different way to look at it. 
Um, but we're not into investigating, what did you say, the investigating the nature of the pain, inquiring on the nature of the pain. That's not what we're interested in. We're just trying to remind ourselves that it's just pain so that we can see it just as pain. It might, It seems, anytime I say that, I know that it sounds like I'm saying something useless or, or meaningless. It's like an absurd thing to do. Like stating the obvious, basically. Yes, I know it's pain. How can I get rid of it? That's the problem. The problem is you've forgotten. You've lost track of it as just pain. If you were to stay with it as just pain, there would be no need to find an answer, to find a solution, because there's no problem. There's only pain. So when we say to ourselves, pain, pain, we teach ourselves a new way to look at it as just pain. And when you stay with it, that's mindfulness. When you really just see something as it is. And that leads to clarity of vision, it leads to a new perspective where everything is just seen as it is. And this clarity where your whole experience is just one of presence. So same when you feel like lightheaded, anxious, nauseous. None of those should make you stop because they're all just more experiences that you can note. If you feel anxious, you say anxious, anxious. If you feel lightheaded, you might say feeling, feeling, or lightheaded. If you're dizzy, maybe. If you feel nauseous, you just say nauseous, nauseous. If there's disliking, you note that as well. It might be that the way you're practicing is not according to the... It sounds like it's not. And that's probably a reason for all the negative reactions. But for all those things, you just note them as they are. How do we note the cessation of consciousness? You don't. Well, you don't. You don't. You don't note in that way. Noting is not like that. Noting is noting a something. Now you can be aware of the cessation, and you're constantly aware of it because it's kind of indirect. But you notice that the consciousness is arising and ceasing. Like you'll be thinking one thing and then suddenly you're thinking something else or so on. As you progress in the meditation, you'll see arising and ceasing. But we don't note say, ceasing or arising, we just note the thing. Like if you're thinking or aware, if you're aware, then you might say aware. And then you'll see it ceasing as well. What is the difference between noting the belly, the nostrils, or breathing through the ears? Well, basically, I tell you to note at the belly. It's not technically any difference. I've never heard of breathing through the ears, but I'm not sure if this person is just being funny or what. Maybe referring to the sound of breathing. Uh, is that a thing? Not one I've practiced, Bunte. Hmm. How do you practice yoga mindfully? Focus on the breath, body sensation? How to know what to focus on when we could focus on so many things? I don't teach mindful yoga, so I don't know. But, you know, based on the, on the fundamentals... You note the movements of the body, you note the postures of the body. If you're standing, walking, sitting, lying, you note that. 
when you move or bend or stretch or push or pull, you note all that. When you feel tension or pain, you note all that. When you feel liking or disliking, happy, unhappy, and so on. Calm, you note all of that. How to know what to focus on? Well, in, in when you're not doing formal meditation, you can focus on, on pretty much anything. One good base is the body again. So focus on the posture of the body, walking, standing, sitting, or lying. Remember the movements of the body as well. And that if something distracts you from that, note it. When it's, it's gone, go back to the body. How to deal with regrets from the past? Just noting? Fear, sadness, regrets, worry, shame. Yeah, all of those. Also the thinking, note that as well. Any visuals as well, you can note that. I mean, it's going to take time. It's probably a very strong, many regrets are very strong and deeply ingrained. So don't be too discouraged when they're, they don't immediately disappear. It takes time, it takes skill, it takes work. Noting the breath is preventing me from correctly seeing what thoughts and feelings I have. It's as if the noting of the breath was there above the feelings and thoughts I have. Is that good practice? So I don't teach noting the breath per se, but if you're talking about noting the stomach rising and falling, it really shouldn't get in the way. Breath might get in the way because it's conceptual, like the breath going in, breath going out is just an idea. The, the truth is like the feelings, right? And if you focus on the feelings, either at the stomach or at the nose, those feelings arise and cease, and they'll be replaced by things like thoughts. You can't have two of them at once. The mind can only be aware of one object at a time. Otherwise, it's what would it mean to be aware of two things at once? It's just a misconception because it's very quick and very chaotic. Any suggestions on how to stay mindful during daily life and not just when meditating? Practice, practice, practice. There's not much more to it than that. Try and do some formal meditation every day. That's a support for your daily practice. But it can take a long time. It's great that you're asking the question because it's a sign that you're interested. Just keep it up. It's hard. Hard things are good to practice. What to do if you find out your parents have been lying to you for a long time? If simply forgive, what kind of meditation should I use? Well, forgive in this perspective means let go of the anger and any kind of sadness or feelings of betrayal and so on. That's all that's required as far as forgiving. You don't have to particularly say anything or take any view of forgiveness. You just have to let go of the anger. When you have no anger, then you just view it as it is. You have wisdom about it. These people did this thing, and that was bad. 
really it's bad, worst for them because it's very per perverse to lie to someone. And then you have no problem with any kind of forgiveness. There are ways to 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 reaffirm that. Of course, you can you can forgive, like actually, verbally say, "I forgive these people," or you can ask their forgiveness and then forgive them and that sort of thing. But ultimately, just let go of the negative states. There's a difference between forgiving and forgetting. It doesn't mean you have any connection with those people if someone is a bad person and continues with bad behavior it's better for both of you probably to not have, to have limited contact or to limit your contact based on that i've stopped and started practicing many times it is particularly hard when agitated and in pain. Several years into practice, the sense of agitation and pain became more intense. Any advice? I don't know if you've considered doing, I don't know if you're doing our tradition, but assuming you are, I don't know if you've done the at-home course. Um, if you've done that already, well, you're probably at a stage where you're just having to slog through the bad habits that you have, so... These are just habits. There's no fixing them. When things become more intense, that's not a bad sign. It's not anything at all. It's just a sign that they're still there. It's telling you how strong they are, how powerful they are. And once you start to see them more objectively, and see more objectively in general, there's less agitation. Pain, on the other hand, is different. I mean, pain is not something you're ever going to be free from. The freedom comes from not reacting, not getting upset about the pain. So don't be discouraged at all if there's intense pain, as long as it's physical. If it's mental pain, well then, yeah, that's related to disliking. So as you become more objective, more at peace, less judgmental, you'll find less reactionary. You'll find that settles down. I noticed that defilements such as paranoia started arising again after a long period of not occurring. Is this a sign that my practice has fallen, or just that there are still roots present in me? Still roots present in you. It's, again, we're so complicated and our problems are so much more deep-rooted than we think. That Now, if you've done... If you've done a lot of intensive practice in the right way, it would be discouraging to have really bad habits come back, but you're always going to see the same bad habits coming back because they're, they're, that's what they are, they're habitual. In fact, even once you're enlightened, there's going to be shadows and echoes of the, those habits. Even arahants had shadows and echoes of their bad habits. Just no more defilements, none of the things like paranoia. But even suppose someone with that problem were to become enlightened, they might still have thoughts that were related to the paranoia, but the thoughts just wouldn't make them paranoid. There would be no fear. There would just be the thought, and then they'd say, oh, here comes that thought again. That's even still possible. So key in your practice is going to be, able, going to be separating the thoughts from the actual fear. 
Because just because you have a thought that's, oh my God, I'm going to, or oh dear, I'm going to suffer in this way or that, they're after me or so on. Just because you have that thought doesn't mean you you have any emotion based on it. Thoughts are also not under our control and they come in very strange ways. So just note the thoughts and let it go and separate it from the fear. Note that as well. A lot of mental issues, the solution relates to separating them into pieces. Because when you make them monolithic, they're not real anymore. You're not actually focusing on the reality. You're focusing on multiple realities and turning them into a boogeyman, a monster. Deconstruction is key. When we note seeing, do we keep in memory that this seeing is due to contact between eye and object? No, we do not. We do not make any intellectual idea of it at all. Let's seeing just be seeing. That really is all there is to it. The problem is that we make more of things than they actually are. Don't cling to the details or the particulars. Let it just be seeing. Anything else related to that, you're going to see it as a result. You're going to see clearly about contact and so on. Anything that you need to see, you'll see, because it's there. It doesn't require you to go looking for it. Like when you see a tiger, you also see its stripes. You don't have to go, look, you don't have to go looking for them. What role does a philosophical contemplation play in a wholesome meditation practice? Well, it depends what kind. I mean, in, that's called jintamayapanya, uh, and it's worldly. It's not a replacement for practice. So it doesn't play any role in the practice, but in terms of supporting the practice, it can be useful. That being said, 99% of the time it's too much. It's not useful. You really don't need anything that we might recognize as philosophical. In fact, the only real thinking you need to do is putting what you've read and heard in a way that allows you to practice it. It's the step between hearing and practicing. So you need to hear. You hear me tell you how to practice. And then you can't just take that hearing and practice it. You have to think about it. And But thinking about it really literally only means... Oh, okay, so this is how I walk, all right, I understand that now, and then go and do it. It really isn't what we would recognize as philosophical. And the same goes with the teachings on like the Four Noble Truths and so on. We think about them far too much. You really don't need to do much thinking at all. It's the practicing that leads to wisdom, and the wisdom isn't thinking either. Wisdom isn't like, oh, I had this great deep thought. That's not wisdom. Wisdom... It means seeing clearly and seeing perfectly, like full, fully. When you fully see something, see the truth, really. It's not intellectual. How do we fabricate and note equanimity? Well, if you're asking 
for tips on how to fabricate equanimity that don't don't do that um if you're asking how equanimity comes into being that's not really important i'm not going to get into it how do you note equanimity as equanimity if you're calm you would say calm calm if you feel neutral you can say feeling feeling or neutral neutral Sorry, did I get cut off there? Not to me, anyway. I find my awareness is more like a series of returns to the present moment rather than continuous awareness. Is this incorrect practice? Yeah, that's right. Coming back to the present moment again and again, moment after moment. And that, that's because there are other habits that are competing. So after some time, you might find yourself able to, more feels more like staying with the present moment. But for sure in the beginning, it feels always like coming back. But even then, it's still arising and ceasing. It's going to be again and again applying the practice. It's quite uh, energy intensive, having to do it again and again. But as a result, it trains you, it builds up energy, it makes you stronger and more energetic. It's a positive quality of mind. Is a moment where the mind knows clearly an object a moment of Nibbana? No. Knowing is an arising, or knowing is something that arises. Nibbana is unarisen state of non-arising. Have we done away with all the meditation questions? I have... Yeah, it actually looks like we're in a second tier. I think I might end it early today. It's been a long day. I've already answered a bunch of questions in the morning. I'm feeling a little bit out of it. So I think let's stop it there then, if there are no other urgent, or we'll stop if there are any last urgent ones, you can answer them otherwise. Thank you all for coming. Thank you, Bhante. And uh, we'll, we'll try and be back on Wednesday again if I think we've got our technical issues sorted out. Have a good day, everyone. Sadhu.